This is District Sentinel Radio, the newscast of record for the left. I am Sam Sachs. I am Sam Knight. We're broadcasting out of the Mayrip, the Middle East Report studio in Washington, D.C. Check out our website, districtsentinel.com. I've got a nervous co-host right now, a very nervous co-host, someone who has lost faith in BBG, it sounds like. Caps are in a first-round Game 7. I haven't talked about playoff hockey much, but it's do or die for Barbara Bush's ghost, unless Barbara Bush's ghost has already been transferred to the New York Islanders. Well, it's already which... died, but... <laughs> <laughs> Look, the Caps need to win tonight. I'm nervous wreck, so... We're going to have an abbreviated newscast here in just a second because we have an interview coming up on this show after the newscast. We talk with Philly activist Ted Kelly on big news affecting the Free Mumia movement. The city's prosecutor, Larry Krasner, has dropped his challenge to Mumia Abu-Jamal's appeal. Um, Big news out of Philly. Ted is going to update us on that case. Um, Real quick, we have the Worst Tweet Tournament. Voting is underway Now in the clown, politician, celebrity land region, where we've got Marco Rubio, German dam tweet, Marco Rubio. Uh, Marco Rubio is going up against, what is it, John Cornyn for quoting Mussolini, I believe? No, uh, Rubio is against Mike Huckabee. Oh yeah, Mike Huckabee with the colonoscopy tweet. Colonoscopy tweet, and it's John Cornyn's Mussolini quote against Jack Dorsey from Twitter, CEO of Twitter, his apology to far-right grifter Candace Owens. Yep. Go vote right now at Worst Damn Tweet. We saw yesterday in voting uh, at Jenny and at Anna Navarro advance um, to the finals of the Resistors region. Um, you were doing some some digging on Jenny, weren't you, Sam? I was, and I'm I'm actually not sure if I should uh, go off on this yet because I don't want to, uh, in any way, skew the 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 tournament, which should be based solely off of the tweet, which is bad, which is bad, which is already terrible, and I feel like uh, suffice to say, Jenny's not her real name. <laughs> it is not her real name at all. Uh, as uh, she advances and this story continues, maybe we'll shed more light on it throughout the tournament. All right. <laughs> it's Wednesday, April 24th, 2019. Here's the news. Facebook says it expects to be fined between 3 and $5 billion for the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Not enough. The company disclosed in, uh, the forecast and quarterly earnings. Already, Facebook has squirreled away $3 billion in anticipation of the fine. The penalty stems from allegations that Facebook gave unauthorized access to user data to its users' data to Cambridge Analytica, a research firm with far-right ties, partially owned by billionaire Robert Mercer and Breitbart goon Steve Bannon. Well, it was owned, partially owned by them. It's, uh, it's pretty defunct now. Facebook had already been under a Federal Trade Commission consent order since 2011, also for giving unauthorized access to user data. How did news of the multi-billion dollar fine impact Facebook's stock? Not at all. No. The company reported more earnings than expected, and Facebook stock jumped a few percentage points in after-hours trading. The market is telling us that Zuckerberg needs to be in prison. 
I think they're taking this privacy issue seriously. Didn't they recently hire the writer of the Patriot Act <laughs> to oversee all this? I think they did. Yeah. Owen over at Common Dreams reported that. Did he not? Yeah. Or at least they wrote up the wrote story. <laughs> Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin informed House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Richard Neal that the Treasury Department will not comply with the congressional request to turn over President Trump's tax returns. Mnuchin said he would provide the committee with a final answer early next month on the request, but wrote in a letter that the request raises, quote, serious constitutional issues, okay? <laughs> he doesn't say that anymore in hearings. <laughs> He's probably, someone told him about it. Um, now, this could be grounds for Congress to eventually sue the Trump administration under the Administrative Procedure Act, although that would uh, spark a le legal battle that could take years to settle. The Trump administration is also stonewalling other congressional probes, including suing House Oversight Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings for requesting Trump's financial records. Trump has stated that his White House will also fight all congressional subpoenas from Democrats uh, in Congress. No matter how many times Nancy Pelosi coolly puts her shades on and pops her collar. And claps like a seal. <laughs> A top Senate Democrat is calling on a major banking regulator to wait until it's fully staffed before considering the largest proposed merger since the financial collapse. Sherrod Brown, ranking member of the Senate Banking Committee, released a letter yesterday saying the FDIC shouldn't rule on the BB&T SunTrust merger without first filling vacancies on its board. Brown also called for the merger to be determined by the FDIC board and not through authority delegated to someone else within the agency. As David Dayen reported for The Intercept today, the White House is slow walking Democratic FDIC nominees in a move that could effectively shield the BB&T SunTrust merger from scrutiny and criticism. As an independent agency, the FDIC has seats for both Republican and Democratic members. As... Uh, someone who has a SunTrust checking account and who regularly fights with SunTrust over bullshit fees, I can't wait for everything to get better after this merger, clearly. So you're going to be paying those bullshit BB&T fees now. The Trump administration is blocking crucial oversight in Afghanistan. The Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, or SIGAR, a guy named John Sopko, is about to release... His latest quarterly report on U.S. assistance efforts in the war-torn country. But before doing so, he's blasting the Pentagon over overclassification. Speaking to reporters today, Sopko said, quote, What we are finding is now almost every metric for success or failure is now classified or non-existent. What used to be a steady stream of information coming out of SIGAR has been locked down in recent years, corresponding with gains made by the Taliban. The last quarterly report showed the Afghan government losing territorial control despite heaps of U.S. assistance. In fact, the last quarterly report showed the Afghan government controlling the least amount of territory since SIGAR began looking at the data in 2015. President Trump telegraphed more classifications. Back in January, he criticized Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan over how SIGAR reports reveal Taliban gains. Trump said it was, quote, insane that such reports are publicly released. On Wednesday, SIGAR's John Sopko told reporters that that's nonsense. Quote, Afghan people know which districts are controlled by the Taliban. The Taliban obviously know which districts they control. Our military knows it. Everybody in Afghanistan knows it.
All right, that'll do it for the newscast. As we mentioned, we're wrapping up things with an interview with Philly activist and Workers World contributor Ted Kelly. Ted's been involved in the movement to see Mumia Abu-Jamal freed from prison, and they got some rare good news recently from the Philly DA's office. Take a listen. Hey, Teddy, we've had uh, you on the show before. We've also had Mike Africa Jr. on the show before uh, to talk about criminal justice issues in Philly and also in particular about Mumia Abu-Jamal's bid to appeal his conviction. Uh, big news just happened on that front. Why don't you fill us in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we should start by saying that today, um, uh, Wednesday, the, the 24th, is actually Mumia's uh, birthday. He's 65 years old today. Hmm. Um, so this uh, this recent news that just came out is uh, sort of a, a great birthday present for him. Um, he's 65 years old. He's been behind bars for 38 years. Um, so if you do the math, he was he was younger than us. He was around 27 when he was shot by police and framed for murder. Um, and I guess if you want, before we get to the most recent updates, I can give you a little background on Mumia and his case. Sure. Yeah. Go ahead and do that in case anybody uh, is listening for the first time here. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people, I'm sure, has heard, have heard his name, if, even if they're not familiar with the case. Um, but in Philadelphia, Mumia was a, uh, a former Black Panther. He joined the Black Panther Party um, in, in his teens, um, and he was an award-winning journalist. He was elected president of the Association of Black Journalists, um, and he did some really confrontational and good reporting. He was the only reporter in Philly who really took the time to talk to the Moo family. Um, and like you said, you and um, you had uh, Mike Mike Africa Jr. Um, on your show. Um, he was personally threatened by uh, Mayor Frank Rizzo in public for his reporting uh, at a press conference in '78. Um, and Mumia was also, uh, you know, the term didn't exist yet, but he was a gig worker. Um, he started driving a taxi cab to pick up some extra cash, and he was actually just finishing his shift um, driving a cab the night that he was shot by police and framed for the murder of uh, Officer Daniel Faulkner. So that was back in 81. Um, he was uh, he was picked up by the police. He was shot. He was beaten. Um, he, they gave a false confession. They claimed that he confessed to killing Officer Faulkner, which he did not. Um, and then his whole trial was like this really egregious uh, frame up. There's, you know, aside from the standard things that the Philly DA's office does and, you know, the criminal justice system across the country does, you know, it was an all white jury uh, for a black man in a majority black city. Um, huge prosecutorial misconduct evidence was hidden, including photographs of the crime scene that revealed that cops were just handling the weapon without, you know, you know, uh, taking precautions for ballistic tests and stuff like that. Um, and one of the court stenographers actually later signed an affidavit that said that Judge Alfred Sabo um, said he was going to help them fry Mumia and actually use the N-word um, while referring to Mumia. So that was all this this horrible frame-up. And, you know, he was put on death row. That He was, through public pressure, he was removed from death row in, uh, in the mid-'90s. Um, and has been sort of languishing in prison uh, ever since then. Um, but recently there was a break in the case. Um, Judge Leon Tucker, um, uh, a common pleas judge here in Philly, um, ruled that Mumia deserved new appellate rights because of evidence that had come out over the years. 
Um, and in his decision, Judge Leon Tucker, who is twice elected here in Philadelphia, he's black himself. He used to work in the DA's office, and my guess is that he has, you know, firsthand experience with the racism of that office. Um, he he wrote this really kind of beautiful um, brief about what justice is and why it's so important that Mamiya gets this appeal. And that was uh, in late December of last year. And um, weirdly, the morning after that ruling, our liberal reformer <laughs> prosecutor, Larry Krasner, claims that um, coincidentally right after that ruling, he found uh, a box or a room filled with boxes of evidence related to Mamiya's case. You remember this part of the story, right? That Larry Krasner claims that he was just wandering around the basement of the DA's office looking for office furniture and happened across all this evidence. I, I do not remember this story. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So literally the morning after Tucker's ruling granting Mumia a new appeal, Larry Krasner and a couple aides claim that they were looking for office furniture in the basement of the DA's office and just stumbled across boxes of evidence that were marked Mumia and Mumia Abu Jamal. Um, they did not reveal this information. That was on the 27th. They did not reveal this information until um, the first week of January, like the 6th. Um, and this it sort of threw, you know, a lot of problems into the case. So uh, because, you know, these missing boxes of evidence, which include police, internal investigation things like all documents of this kind, you know, evidence related to Mumia's case. Um, the judge didn't know about it. The defense team didn't know about it. The public didn't know about it. Um, and that sort of started this new back and forth between Leon Tucker and Larry Krasner. Um, then Larry Krasner decided that he was going to appeal Tucker's ruling and basically blocked Mumia's latest chance to finally get a fair trial. And this is, I yeah. think, where we where we left off last time. We, with uh, Mike. Yeah, yeah, with Mike uh, at this point. Uh, and since then, Krasner's had, uh, he, well, he's changed his mind. Yes, yes, he had a, a sudden change of heart. And, you know, this is, like Mike, Mike always says, um, the system is based on pressure. You know, elected officials aren't going to do anything unless we pressure them. Um, and, and, you know, to, to be fair, you know, our approach from the beginning, what Michael used to say was, uh, you know, we're going to be neutral on Krasner until he gives us a reason not to be. And when he appealed this ruling, that was a reason not to be. <laughs> he gave us our reason. Um, so there was a, a massive campaign that included a lot of Krasner's progressive supporters when he was uh, campaigning for DA. Um, and, you know, it, it sort of culminated in uh, this Yale conference that Krasner was going to, he was invited to be the keynote speaker at, and when, of the rebel lawyer conference in Yale, and uh, when they dis learned what Krasner did, they disinvited Larry and actually invited Mumia to call in and be the keynote speaker instead. So it was a, a very public, massive campaign to get Larry to change his mind, and he did. We, we pressured him into doing so. But it's important to keep in mind with Krasner that you know, while while he did run as a liberal reformer, you know, he outspent all his opponents in the race 
you know, by a huge margin. I think he had like $3 million in donations from the, the standard top Democrat fundraisers like Soros, Buffett, all those, those folks. So he is, you know, despite appearances, a pretty establishment figure. Um, but, you know, it's, he's clearly someone that responds to pressure. So that's something. Well, I mean, <clears throat> Philadelphia is, uh, it, uh, Krasner definitely uh, not the, uh, the first Philly DA. I, c- I could imagine a situation where uh, other Philly DAs would, would respond to this kind of public pressure by uh, not giving a shit at all. So <laughs> may, may, well, may, I mean, maybe he, at... he, give, he gets uh, half a farthing for doing the bare minimum here. I'll, I'll give him, yeah, I'll give him a quarter or a half a farthing. I mean, when you look at the DA's office, it's like his, Larry Krasner's direct predecessor, the pre- predecessor, Seth Williams, is in jail right now for major fraud and corruption. Um, so, so... Ed Rendell who was DA and then mayor and then governor, he's the genius that gave us that 2016 presidential strategy for PA. For every person we lose in Philadelphia, we'll pick up two Republicans in the Philly suburbs. Yeah, we can thank Rendell for that. I saw Ed Rendell on TV today already stumping for Joe Biden, and Ed Rendell looks like (laughs) shit. Well, it's good that... It's good that Ed Rendell has uh, found some time away from his primary job of shilling for the MEK and for a, for a war in Iran. So it's it's good he's doing slightly more constructive things with his time. So, Ted, Krasner, right. Krasner didn't come out and say that I'm changing my mind because of all this activist pressure on me. Instead, he's citing what was a, a, a more narrow ruling from, from a judge yeah, as right. grounds to allow him to... to drop uh, drop the challenge to the appeal? So when you look at Krasner's response to Tucker's initial ruling, um, his complaint was twofold. And what's important to keep in mind here, again, the, the history of the Philly DA's office is that the current attorney who's working on Mumia's case is the same attorney that pre- predates Krasner. That was one of the attorneys who was already in the office before Krasner took power, and she's still on the case. Um, and the the office's opposition to Tucker's ruling is almost verbatim, word for word, the same critique that was issued before. I think uh, attorney Epstein wrote it before, which is what it comes down to essentially is, listen, if we... If we let Mumia have an appeal, there's going to be like hundreds of other people in Philadelphia who need to have an appeal too. It's sort of uh, an admission Good. of this mass misconduct, you know. Um, and so they don't want. It's one of the reasons that when we say free Mumia, we say free them all, because Mumia is his case is just the most egregious and complicated of you know the thousands of cases of people being locked up in the city. Um, and obviously around the country as well. But so Krasner's critique essentially was, this is too broad. If, you know, if we let Mumia have this, it's, we're going to have to go through a lot of internal investigation. Um, and again, that was the, the case. Um, that was the same argument they used before. Now, Tucker's then later, the 1925 brief that he just had to write, um, um, it doesn't really change the narrowness of the ruling. If anything, in, in the reading of some of us, it, it broadens it because he speaks in sort of general terms about justice and why we need to have 
you know, an unbiased uh, court proceedings. But um, whatever, Krasner changed his mind. So um, he did. Uh, we're, we're told that he actually personally called Maureen Faulkner, the widow of Officer Daniel Faulkner, before going public with this. So that's just like a gross little thing that we know about his collusion with the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police. Hmm. So now that this appeal is going to uh, go forward, uh, on what grounds does Mumia feel that he can get his conviction overturned? It's, I mean, the there's a couple different ways of going about it. And in fact, at this stage, we're going to know in the next couple months which court it could go to a superior court, it could go to the state Supreme Court. We're not really sure um, what direction it's going to take yet. But there's a couple different ways that we can go about it. Because, again, the I would encourage folks to go to mobilizationformumia.com. It's mobilization, the number four, mumia.com, to get into Because there's so many details about how his case was a frame-up. Um, but I think perhaps the most important or the, the, the easiest track right now would be appealing for the fact that there was a Brady violation. A Brady violation is basically when a, the prosecutor's office has evidence that they know would be helpful to the defense, and they withhold it. Um, and there's been a lot of folks released recently um, on Brady violations, including some of the people who were involved in the, the Brinks uh, heist um, in the late 70s that you may have heard about. Um, and really, this is a period where there are a lot of former freedom fighters and many Black Panthers being released from prison. You know, Herman Bell and Albert Woodfox and Seiko Odinga. These are all people who have been in prison for decades who are now getting out, uh, including, of course, Michael and Debbie Africa, who uh, uh, Mike's parents, who were both released after 40 years and um, just got married in a beautiful ceremony earlier this month. So at this point, when is Mumia's next hearing? When when is this case uh, scheduled to move forward? So we don't have an exact date, and I think the the next step is going to be um, there won't necessarily be hearings that we can show up for. Um, obviously, we'll blast those dates out when they come, but there's going to be a, a series of filings. Um, but by June or July we will know for sure which court is taking up the case um, and where we can go from here. This is going to sound shitty, but it speaks to our hell world that we live in. But I feel like, <laughs> I feel like Mumia needs a Netflix documentary about him at this point. Honestly. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I hear you. I hear you because there, there's been a couple documentaries that are out there from mostly the nineties, like during the big push when um, we were trying to get him off of death row. Like, I was a kid at the, at the time, so I can't really say we, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, there was a huge, huge movement in the 90s. Like, there were like 10,000 people out in the streets for Mumia in Philadelphia. And I think we, especially for folks around our age who, like, we've heard his name, we know that he was probably framed, but we don't know the details of the case. It's important to, to get that information together. So there's a documentary that um, Danny Glover made in the 90s called Framing and Execution, and it's all about, like, how 60 Minutes, you know, is doing propaganda for the Fraternal Order of Police. There's a couple different good documentaries that lay out his whole case, and they're all on YouTube now. But, yeah, I hear you. I think Netflix, come on, what are we waiting for? 
Ted Kelly, Philly activist, Workers World contributor. Thanks for coming on the show and giving us another update on uh, this story. We're going to have to have you on again as it unfolds. My pleasure. Yeah. And if I could just say um, for anybody who's in the area on April 27th, uh, that's actually this Saturday, um, there's going to be a march in Germantown Ave um, on at 11 a.m. And then there's going to be a book release party for Mumia um, at the People's Sanctuary on Germantown Ave. Um, because Mumia just wrote, I think, his 11th or 12th book called Murder, Inc. It's about U.S. imperialism. So everybody should come out if they can. Definitely. I know we've got some uh, Philly listeners, so show up. Great. Thanks, Ted. Always a pleasure, Sam. Thanks again to Ted. That'll do it for the show today. Don't miss the newscast each and every day. Catch them all Monday through Thursday by subscribing at Patreon, patreon.com slash district sentinel thanks to our sponsors the congressional dish podcast hosted by jen briney find it at congressionaldish.com another sponsor the middle east report find it at merip.org we're back tomorrow we're here in dc so that you don't have to be